Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych topic of going postal, workplace violence. Welcome back, everybody. It is so good to be back here. I'm finally over jet lag, Dr. Yay, Shiloh. It, it took an took. extra week because I'm ancient. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm so relieved. (laughs) Yes. But gosh, what a trip. I know we waxed eloquent about it last week, but man, it was a great trip. And I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll be invited back next year and we can do it again. Another trip to the sunny aisles. Oh, can't wait. Yes, but we are in the thick of summer and have a little bit of downtime, which is super unusual for us. So I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah, enjoy it while we can, right? Yes, absolutely. So before we get started here today, we want to talk about last week's episode. Again, we (laughs) sacrificed our lives for you guys (laughs) and did a documentary review on the curious case of Natalia Grace. Many people have thanked us already. Many people are like, shit, I should have just listened to the episode and not watched it. (laughs) But this documentary takes us on a virtual roller coaster of what the fuck moments punctuated by conflicting stories unreliable narrators, over-the-top personalities, oh, and abuse, neglect, you know, things like that too. And we round out the review by providing some real discussion of the challenges of adoption, as well as a framework of attachment styles and potential trauma. So please check it out. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating episode for us. I think it's something you can kind of watch. I'm still processing the entire series with one of my work colleagues who is a mom. She's a mom of two kids, and she's just got this look on her face of just explain to me what's going on with that guy. I'm like, well, some things are just unexplainable. (laughs) Some things are just don't, there's not enough words in the DSM to explain what's going on. We're psychologists, not magicians. (laughs) Right. But back to today's topic, going postal, you know, I wonder how much this term is still used because I don't really kind of remember it being said in recent vernacular or on late night television. And so I don't know how much of our audience out there is aware of it. I'm sure probably given it's a true crime audience, a lot of you out there know, because in slang term, going postal has become synonymous with an anger management problem or flying off the handle in a work environment. And unfortunately, because it's become a slang term, people are forgetting that it actually was a legit set of incidences that led to some big changes in work environments and OSHA requirements that originated here in the U.S. in the 1990s following several back-to-back incidents from 1986 onward where individuals that were working for the USPS or the United States Postal Service, for those of you that aren't in the U.S., they these workers shot and killed fellow workers and in some cases members of the public. So there's a documentary out there that I highly, highly recommend. It's called Murder by Proxy, How America Went Postal. And it focuses on these very infamous shootings. They give all the details on the shooters, which as our listeners, you know, we really make a great effort to stay away from the names of the perpetrators because we just don't feel like that's really relevant. Some reports differ. That's why I'm going to refer everybody back to that really great documentary. But they cover several of the most essential cases. And after the first case that we're going to cover in a moment that took place in August of 19. 
1986, there were over 20 more similar incidents over the next 11 years that resulted in more than 40 deaths. So while our numbers of deaths from mass casualty events has certainly gone up, the number of incidents at that time is really significant. And it seems to have kind of gotten lost in history because they really sparked a huge national conversation that led to the creation of the phrase going postal to describe these similar acts of violence. And so we think that it was a Florida newspaper in 1993, the St. Petersburg Times, that used the term or coined the term at first. And they were commenting on a meeting of minds that had gathered to stop these incidents. And there's a quote from that article that says, the symposium was sponsored by the U.S. Postal Service, which has seen so many outbursts that in some circles, excessive stress as known as going postal. Yeah, that's interesting because they're they're talking about this symposium where it sounds like they were starting to use that term. So did the symposium come? Yeah, did they come up with it in-house? Yeah. Well, there's some information that we talk about later on that lays the groundwork that people knew shit was going down at the yeah. Postal Service. Well, which I think, you know, of course, this being a federal agency, I'm like, thank God there was so much investigation and research right. into what happened because, yeah. you know, it seems like it takes just too long for that to happen these days. But in 2011, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics Census of Fatal Occupational Injuries, who even knew that that was an entity, right? they reported a fact that pretty much startled researchers in the field of homicide. Homicide ranks as the second highest cause of workplace fatalities in the United States. So not industrial accidents or otherwise, but homicide, with it also being the primary cause of workplace fatalities among women. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, I think, and we don't have this penned out here, but I really think that is related to domestic violence situations where, you know, spouses are coming to the workplace to target their female partners. Right. So what you're saying is that the instigating or precipitating event and emotional issues, mental health issues would have originated outside the workplace, but the violence took place in the workplace, which if you do parse that out, kind of indicates that there's a need for security and a need for communication about these issues. So we do have some trigger warnings today. We're going to be talking about gun violence and mass shootings. So please be aware. So we're actually going to start out today with the case study that really kicked off this phenomenon. And I want to just clue everyone in to keep in mind that we're talking about targeted workplace violence here. So not a random, you know, spraying of bullets into a crowd of strangers. But generally seeking revenge on a particular person or persons who might represent that larger entity that is at the core of the grievance of the perpetrator. So although we just referenced a domestic violence incident that might then also be sort of a targeted situation, this one really has to do with ongoing workplace issues by workers, employees, former employees, that nature. So this mass casualty event occurred on August 20th, 1986 at the United States Postal Office in Edmond, Oklahoma. Oklahoma, and it was at the time the state's largest and the nation's third largest mass murder committed by a single individual in a single incident. Mm. Essentially, a mail carrier recently in trouble with his supervisors opened fire in a crowded post office early in the morning, killing 14 workers and injuring seven others before taking his own life. But let's break this down. So the attack started when one worker was shot in the parking lot behind the post office at approximately 6.45 a.m. And it is believed that the perpetrator shot the worker before entering the building and then attempted to lock the back doors before he went on to open fire on approximately 
100 workers that were just starting out their day sorting mail and preparing for deliveries. And it was reported that the shooter pulled at least three pistols from a mail pouch and without a word started shooting at his fellow employees. So it was also reported that he sought out workers cowering under tables and in cubicles. Again, going back to your point, not just randomly mm -hmm. spraying a room, but he was targeting individuals for whatever reasons were in his mind. There was a woman there named Debbie Smith. She was sorting letters when the shooting started. She said, I froze. I couldn't run. He came to shoot the clerks in the box section next to mine, and I knew I was next. But she was really smart. She hid, and he passed her by and opened fire on the next section. And when she had a chance, she bolted for the door and fled, hearing other clerks screaming as they were shot. Mm. What so a she, traumatic, traumatic experience. Yeah, she went through her own run, hide, fight, you know, triage there for right. her own life-saving efforts. So the police received word of the shooting shortly after 7 a.m. and they were at the scene within minutes. Police officers said that they heard two more shots from inside the building upon their arrival and believing that the gunman was still alive, they actually tried to establish dialogue with him for crisis negotiations by telephone and through like bullhorns or megaphones until about 8 30 a.m. when finally they decided to send the SWAT team in. SWAT enters the building, but it was too late. All in all, 14 people had died as a result of the shooting, including one of the perpetrator's direct supervisors and two individuals actually survived by pretending to be dead and hiding under the bodies of their coworkers. We've heard wow. that time and time again with yeah. our mass shootings. Yeah. So let's look at what we know about the offender and what has transpired prior to the shooting immediately. So the shooter was a 44-year-old part-time letter carrier who had worked with the post office for about a year and a half. Profile issues, he was unmarried, he apparently had no close friends, although he was like a ham radio fanatic. So this was like almost social media back in the day before there was social yeah. media as ham radio people really connected from all over the world. After his mother's death in 1978, he continued to live in her modest white frame house that they had both shared within the city limits of Oklahoma City, which is just 13 miles south of Edmond. So they also know that he had served in the U.S. Marines and he had had active participation in the Oklahoma Air National Guard. And then researchers also found that according to the Veterans Administration, he served from January 15th, 1964 to December 30th, 1966. He had claimed in his application for a job at the Postal Service that he had served in Vietnam. However, VA records show that he was stationed in the United States throughout his Marine Corps service. So now here's another nexus, stolen mm -hmm. valor. Yeah. Yes. He served as part of the National Guard, but he was presenting as something completely different. Yes, people reported him talking about his service over in Vietnam, but that was not true. So additionally, he was described as a socially inept loner. And after the military was reportedly unable to hold a job for very long, we see this pattern of often blaming the company or management or supervisors for his problems. However, it was noted that his actual performance in delivering mail was excellent. He often would get through his routes rather quickly, but he was a relief carrier. So week by week, day by day, his routes changed all the time. He was just sort of like, like a substitute teacher. He like was filling in. Yeah. yeah, filling in. So I think that's interesting. And maybe I'm thinking of like a better time gone by where people actually had relationships with their mail carriers. He really would have never been able to develop that because he was just like the fill-in guy. So to me, it, maybe it was a perfect thing for a socially inept person. Well, 
Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. I would add to that, that would be stressful for anyone. You don't ever get to establish your own routine. So every single day you've got a new routine. It'd be like a cab driver, you know, having to go to a completely different part of town every day and not know pre-GPS, not know the layout. Yeah. But what we do know is that the day before the attacks, he was brought into the upper management glass windowed office with two of his supervisors, and he was pretty severely reprimanded mandated apparently for misdirected mail and tardiness. So misdirected mail, I tried looking this up. I think that it was delivering to the wrong address. Yeah. Maybe that's which... why he got done so fast. He just <laughs> put it wherever. Well, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, there are other cases that are sort of adjacent to this of like, it's not so much about workplace violence, but every other month, there's another case of a, of a mail carrier. Like in Alabama, I know of one because I think it was Warrior Creek, which was near where one of my aunts lived. There was a guy that was just dumping every day, like another two or three boxes of mail. What? There was uh, just scads of mail were all found uh, down by the river, completely waterlogged and ruined. So Jeez. that sort of stuff does happen. But we don't know if that's what was happening here. But apparently, you know, misdirected and he was reported to be tardy on several occasions. So there are reports that this was also not the first time that he had been reprimanded for these type of actions and that he had threatened revenge for these reprimands. So he's gotten in trouble before. He has stated that he's pissed off about it and threatened revenge. And apparently, you know, this was pre-threat assessment on the job or risk management, and they just maybe turned up the heat on him. Later that afternoon, he approached a female clerk who had been kind to him, and he asked her if she was coming to work the next day. And she said, yeah, of course, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. coming to work. He replied that she should stay home. Mm. And this is classic of mass shooters, especially seeing this in school shootings with teens, right? There's leakage a little bit. Yeah, the one buddy they have or the one girl they've had a crush on, they'll tell them, hey, don't come to school tomorrow sort of thing or watch social media or something like that. This is interesting because I don't actually see this as like a little glimmer of kindness from the person. Mm -hmm. I really see it as another perceived power move by them. You know, they're sort of getting to pick and choose who lives, who doesn't. And it's just someone who has decided to go through with their plan. And this is just another way for them to control what's going on. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So of course, many of his neighbors and coworkers who survived were interviewed afterwards. A lot of our data, again, from this time is from like news media and outlets and journalists. And interestingly, just going to his neighbors first, they accused him of prowling the neighborhood at night, like being somewhat of a peeping Tom. They use those words and they referred to him as crazy pat. They also noted that the shooter often commented that he thought the children of the neighborhood were mocking him or laughing at him. That's so a big deal. What do you That's think a of that, really Dr. Big Scott? Point. Well, like we've talked about before, there's a whole spectrum of psychosis, you know, mm-hmm. severity of symptoms. And even if this person is not psychotic, if it was mainly more like personality driven, the idea that you're projecting your fears on the outside world around you and then misinterpreting the data yes. that comes back. I mean, kids, kids can be really mean too because that's what they do true it's possible that they were, but it's not very likely. And we don't know what he looked like. Was he, you know, we know he was socially inept. Was he strange looking? Did he yeah. have a weird habits that they, kids can be cruel? But more likely it's that he had sort of a certain level of paranoia about his surroundings. I agree. I think it's just like a light addition to this man as a grievance collector. Right. That not only is that at work, but sort of in the neighborhood in his own home environment. Some of his colleagues 
at the post office said that they were not surprised by his actions. Oh, wow. They described him as a loner who talked of Vietnam at length, even though he apparently never served there. He was also described as, quote, a quiet man who seemed to be brimming with pent up anger. Wow. Yes. After he was talked to by his supervisors the day before the shooting, he had actually telephoned union officials twice, demanding that he be transferred to Oklahoma City. Local union officials commented at the time that there had been an increasing level of friction between the mail carriers and management in recent months. And this was as a result of some postal service realignment. They even said that there was extraordinary pressure, even harassment to increase productivity. And we'll hear more about that later, but they really thought that the increasing pressure on workers contributed to the tragedy. So, I mean, here we have local union officials commenting directly on this. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if they're trying to link it to then further their cause and their right, narrative, right. but you guys know if if you have good union representatives, they'll kind of do anything for you, which is a great thing to have when you're trying to get a raise or something. But here's a quote from Bob Bearden, who was the local union's recording secretary at the time. He said, a few of us were talking about it a few weeks ago, and someone said that one of these days, someone's going to go off the nut and shoot somebody. And he also went on to say, this is not an isolated incident. There have been other confrontations. Most people can let off steam and then walk away. This time it was taken to the ultimate. So yes, in hindsight, they're having these reflections, but you know, this is someone who's probably getting phone calls from union members that are voicing their complaints of what's yeah, happening. Absolutely. In 1987, a 7,000-page U.S. Postal Inspector's report attempted to analyze and make sense of the Edmund incident. And there was even a one-day congressional hearing that took place on March 18th, 1987, where the survivors and families got a chance to share their experiences regarding what happened at the event. And that really provided a valuable platform that laid the groundwork for legislative change regarding workplace issues and environment, not only at the Postal Service, but basically it sort of started the wave across mm -hmm. the country for looking at these bigger picture issues. The end result of the study and forum strongly indicated that there absolutely should have been measures and protections in place to not only identify this individual as a potential threat, but also means to eliminate him as a potential employee. So mm -hmm. what they're saying is we should have had risk management and threat management procedures in place. And we also should have recognized that he was going to be a problem employee at the beginning. Yeah. You know, some a lot sort of, like law enforcement having the, yeah. the full psych batteries these days, right? Yeah. Some sort of screening, some sort of pre-employment way to identify some of these things in hindsight. So to honor the victims and their survivors, the community of Edmond and the U.S. Postal Service placed a large memorial on the grounds of the Edmond Post Office. I think this is great because I think they really could have like hidden that and like we don't want to bring any yeah. attention to this, but it sounds like this was such a small community that it was the right thing to do. I know I read one account where someone said, if you didn't know someone directly who died, you knew someone who was related to someone, yeah. basically. So the victims of this incident were Patricia and Chambers, Judy Stevens Denny, Richard C. Esser Jr., Patricia A. Gabbard, Jonah Ruth Gregert, Patty Jean Husband, Betty Ann Jared, William F. Miller, Kenneth W. Morey, Leroy Oren Phillips, Jerry Ralph Pyle, Paul Michael Rockney, Thomas Wade Shader Jr., and Patty Lou Welch. 
So the Edmund incident stands out pretty significantly among a series of over a dozen homicide incidents that were committed by postal employees between 1986 and 1999. Again, like we said earlier, it claimed overall the lives of almost 40 postal workers and then another half dozen non-employees. These horrible, horrible events prompted extensive research on workplace violence that was conducted not by bean counters or pin pushers, but they brought in criminologists, psychiatrists, psychologists, and multiple federal agencies. So a little too late, but at least well, that's yeah. the correct approach for this type of project. And the outcome was the implementation of many new practices in not only hiring, but employee management and safety protocols within the U.S. Postal Service. Also, federal legislation concerning homicide against federal employees completely expanded in 1996 mm. in response to the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, and they extended its coverage to include all federal employees. Very important. Wow. Yeah. So that would have been, you know, simultaneous with kind of this exploration and and the time period from which these postal shootings happen. We have another huge federal attack happening here. So I just, this is not comprehensive by any means, but I just want us to give a little synopsis on a few of these other shootings because they are so diverse and there's so many different issues going on, even though we think, okay, postal office, workplace grievance, there's a lot of factors and variety to the people and the grievances that were happening. So we're just going to review a handful of them here, including some actually more contemporary ones after the 90s. And we start in 1989, Escondido, California. On August 10th, 1989, a letter carrier shot and killed his wife, then drove to the Orange Glen post office and killed two coworkers before ending the spree by shooting himself in the head. So this one, we have shooting his wife at home first, which again, we see with all types of mass casualty shooters where they sort of kick it off with people unrelated to where they're going to do the attack first. So like familicide prior to going to the workplace. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, I don't have numbers on it, but generally it's usually family, but not always. Like the Isla Vista shooter, you know, killed right. his two roommates and a visitor. So, you know, we've always talked about that as they're sort of doing something that is not going to bring attention. If you're killing someone within the home, it is probably not going to be heard Police personnel are not going to respond right away, but it's that first act of violence that they're like, okay, now the rest of my plan has to follow through. Right. Right. So another incident, 1990 Ridgewood, New Jersey, a postal worker dressed up in military fatigues, and then he snuck into his supervisor's house killing her with a samurai sword and then shooting her boyfriend before going straight to the post office at 2 a.m. and shooting two additional mail handlers and a truck driver. And he ended up surrendering to police after throwing a bomb at them. There's Whoa. so much to unpack there that that could be an entire episode. Yes. The idea of adopting military style clothing, sneaking into the house or breaking into the house mm -hmm. using a sword. It's terrifying. It, I mean, it's there's also like a whole we could probably do an entire episode just about people who use swords. Oh, true. Right. That's like true. literally like that is such a profile issue. There's a lot yeah. of information on this one. And to boil this down to just a couple sentences was really hard. But he had really been harassing her. She had gotten the police involved. And this was very, very personal. So in November of 1991 in Royal Oak, Michigan, we have our next incident. So this was a recently fired letter carrier who entered the post office facility and walked into the area where management sits and shot and killed his former bosses. He killed four people 
wounded four others, and then took his own life. As reported in a comprehensive article on this subject in Vice, Vice has a great reference article that we have in the show notes. It's really good. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a two-parter. It's very long. And um, comprehensive. It's like bigger than just the perpetrators, yeah. but I highly recommend reading it. But it's shorter than the 7,000 page <laughs> report yes, that was thank done. Thank you. Thank you for that. So a coworker from that incident was interviewed shortly after the shooting started and said, when I heard there was a shooter, in my mind, it could have been anyone. And then this coworker went on to say something that you really never hear in a mass shooting, but apparently these postal workers are clued in. They said, I understand why he did it. Again, lending to this overall pressure and like, I don't know, like a boiling pot of water here. Well, I that's a, such an interesting and vital piece of information. And it makes me think of, I mean, is, I don't know. Did you ever watch Desperate Housewives? Yeah, for a bit. So Mark Cherry was the producer of that show. And he had been in Hollywood for a very long time and had had some successes and now was like at a really low point in his career. And he was living, had to move back in with his mom. You know, wow. like sort of, wow, you know, my career's at this low point. And it was when I believe Susan Smith drove her children into a lake, you know, put locked her kids in the car, drove them into a lake, and then, you know, tried to tell people that it was, you know, that she had been kidnapped and all this yeah. rigmarole and stuff. And he turned to his mom, they were watching it together and said, I don't understand. Like, how how could somebody possibly do this? And his mother said, oh, I, I could understand why. And he oh, was boy. completely <laughs> shocked. And so it opened up this conversation. He goes, she, she was telling him basically, you don't understand the pressure of being a mom. Like, wow. yeah, what she did was horrible. And, you know, yeah. like, you know, it wasn't like she was advocating for infanticide or anything. But, you know, it. I think that's a great example and what you were talking about is a great example of like stress is the enemy and we need mm. to start thinking of stress as a pandemic and an yeah. endemic as well as other environmental factors like and you can't you can't expect everything to just keep working at status quo when our culture and our society continues to turn up the heat I you know agree. it's very understandable The next couple of examples are so wacky because they occurred on the same day yep. in 1993. One incident was in Dearborn, Michigan. The other one was in Dana Point, California. In Michigan, at a post office, a worker wounded three and killed one and then killed himself. And again, same day, Dana Point, California, another postal worker killed his mother and her dog, then shot two postal workers and resulting in the killing of one, though at least one of the other ones survived. Yeah. What the hell? Can you imagine? Like, I don't remember I the news that day, but Jesus, I would have been That's like, I'll just use the UPS store. Thank you. So I just want to talk about three very recent ones quickly mm -hmm. here. So this one was in 2006 and a female former postal employee killed six postal employees before killing herself with a handgun at a large postal processing facility. Police later also identified a seventh dead victim in a condominium complex in Goleta, where she once lived. And that's also where this all took place. According to media reports, the Postal Service had forced her to retire in 2003 because of worsening quote, mental health problems. The incident is believed to be the deadliest workplace shooting ever carried out in the United States by a woman. So it's, again, like just the variety of factors going on here. We have a female 
that perpetrated this type of crime. Interesting too, in, in gathering all this data that this is the first time that they actually use, like we find in the descriptors, mental health problems. Yeah. And it's in reference to talking hmm. about a woman, hmm. whereas like with the men, it's like, oh, he was socially inept and really quiet, but he was brimming with anger. Like, great hello, <laughs> what? Maybe she was just fucking angry too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. In Baker City, Oregon, back in 2006, a letter carrier brought his 357 Magnum revolver to the city post office with the intention of killing the postmaster. And when he arrived in the parking lot, he reportedly ran over his supervisor several times. Like that, that wow. takes a lot of work, by the way. Yes. Yeah. He then went into the post office looking for the postmaster and he couldn't find him. So he went back out to the parking lot and shot his supervisor. Jeez. So hits him several times, guys laying there on the ground, goes in, can't find his next victim, comes back out, takes out all his rage in the gunshot mm -hmm. against his supervisor. Horrible. And then in Dublin, Ohio in 2017, a postal worker arrived at the Dublin postal office naked, then That's shot and killed. It's, it's a statement, naked, but I guess clearly carrying a gun, following the shooting, he made his way to a nearby apartment complex and also killed the Dublin postmaster by throwing her to the ground where the blunt force trauma unfortunately killed her instantly. The offender had been under investigation by the Postal Service prior to this incident. And in September 2019, he was found not guilty of his crimes by reason of insanity. Ooh, interesting. Very, very rare. Very, very yeah. rare, as we've talked about over and over again. So this is someone who must have legitimately had a pretty severe mental issue. Again, he showed up naked. He showed up naked. But like, that's a screening issue, too. You know, you. Oh, yeah. Those are some of the things you should really look for when you're screening employees. Not saying that people with mental illness can't function very, very well. They absolutely can. Sure. But maybe not the high stress and sort of wackadoo yeah. workings of the post office. You know, what stands out to me about all these is we have a wide variety of ways that people were killed. It's not just firearms. Right. I mean, samurai sword. Car, blunt force, Car, yeah. blunt force trauma to the head. That's, that is a spectrum there. Yeah, absolutely. So let's sort of take all this and shift to looking at what came out about the culture of the Postal Service at the time. And contrary to the negative perception that the U.S. Postal Postal Service garnered due to these tragic murders, an examination of long-term statistics reveals that the level of stress within the service was not significantly higher than that of other similar occupations. Moreover, when considering incidents of workplace rage, the U.S. Postal Service does not exhibit a greater frequency compared to other types of employment. But while this assertion from a psych journal appears to mitigate the overall stress levels experienced by employees, one-on-one -on -one interviews by journalists Pate a very different picture for us to look at. Extensive investigations were conducted to delve into the work environment within the Postal Service, and this revealed a culture that was not only associated with the previous shootings, but was also widely regarded as the primary culprit behind them. So that's fascinating. So yeah. on one hand, we're referring to a research paper that says it's really no worse than anywhere else, mm -hmm. or it's only slightly more significant. But I think that they weren't actually looking and really drilling down into some of the data. Or some so of the unique be, factors too. Right, right, right. Postal unique service. factors of that particular work environment. So additional 
and numerous reports from the General Accounting Office were generated that were trying to address labor management relationships, specifically within the USPS. So it's important to note that the USPS inspect it's important to note that the USPS Inspector General's Office was only established in 1996, so it really wasn't part of the investigations prior to 1996. And the outcomes of these investigations were, to use a word, pretty scandalous. Consistently, these internal studies now consistently presented a pattern where Postal Service was absolutely seen to foster a fractured and perilous relationship, using their research terms, <laughs> fractured and perilous relationship between supervisors and employees. And that was in the best of times. And then and in worse situations, the environment could include clear incidents of cruelty and abuse at its wow. most extreme. So it's also really evident that everyone, everyone at all levels of the post office was completely aware of this problem. Problem, but there was a lack of will or drive to rectify it on a macro issue. And prior to this being established, basically postmaster generals in various areas around the country were like their own little kings. It was like little fiefdoms. They mm. ran it the way they wanted to run it, despite the fact that they were a federal agency and supposed to be following some very, very strict rules. Attempts to replicate successful small scale initiatives that were really working well in other places and were designed to make like a significant impact on the environment, they completely became came bogged down and frozen in red tape, like uh, bureaucratic yeah. red tape. And the conflicts between these local USPS management and their workers unions and the higher ups. So you have all these entities going at each other and who are the ones that are suffering? It's the workers oh who are clearly <laughs> suffering and in the most danger. Are you not thinking of our own work environment a little bit, like not maybe just ours, but like the bigger <laughs> entities that we've worked for before going, uh-huh. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay. Seen this before. Jeez. Yeah, we have to point out, though, as the Vice article author Jason Kobler did, that these shooters were not representative of the majority. And it highlights the complexity and sometimes the desperate circumstances faced by these right. workers, really within the broader context of employment opportunities and professional development available to them. So the majority of postal workers face a lot of daily challenges without resorting to violence, yes. clearly. You know, if, if I acted on every dark thought in my head when I'm at work, I, I would know. be in a lot of trouble. But then, you know, overwhelmingly, the majority of workers in all areas of challenging and toxic environments do the same thing. They deal with it and they deal with it, you know, generally pretty well. And maybe sometimes they deal with it too well because we should be more active in pushing back against right. toxic work environments. In the post office, however, you've got it reminds me of there's a situation at that time in the post office that really reminds me of when I was putting together the study for my dissertation. And mm. one of my advisors, and I said, well, what if I offer participants X amount of dollars to take place? And he said, well, that's too much. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I don't understand. How can it be too much? And he pointed <laughs> out, he pointed out like it's because you have to be careful. You're only asking for 15 minutes of their time. But the amount that you that he goes, the amount that you're trying to offer them or what you're trying to offer them now verges on coercive. Sure. And I was sure. like, but wait, they're making the choice. And he goes, I know, but like, this is the way the internal review board is going to look at it. So yeah. that's just a small example of what actually goes on when a person who is seeking
seeking a well-paying job enters into. I mean, you know, there are people there are like the bootstrappers out there will say, well, you know, buck up, man, yep. and put up with that shit. That's Do a paycheck. Do more with less. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You need to make it work. I mean, it's like, no, in the long term, it's not worth the money for that level of toxicity because the damage is going to come 20, 30 years down the totally. road. So in the post office, there's a steady job and steady benefits that are protected. And that may significantly influence their willingness to endure these toxic challenges that otherwise they wouldn't tolerate at all. So working for the Postal Service is a solid middle-class employment opportunity of which there aren't that many anymore. Mm -hmm. And there's like a scarcity of employers that offer these types of wages and benefits to individuals without a college education or specialized trade skills. So this is a really valuable job that provides yep. a very valuable service. You know, we shouldn't expect everybody to go to college, especially in this day of like exorbitant college fees. <laughs> oh, you know, God. it just doesn't make sense. Let's right? not talk about that topic right now. <laughs> Okay, sorry. Yeah, oh, right. Forgot. Sorry. Sorry, folks. Yep, it's touchy. Yeah, I I mean, I hope we're empathizing here with their situation and what government workers are often faced with. You know, there are fantastic benefits and salaries out there, and it can be very alluring, but you do tend to trick yourself into putting up with more shit sometimes and then put the red tape on top of it. We We get it. We totally get it as as fellow government workers. Well, I have this anecdotal experience. I I live just a few blocks from a a, a huge processing center. Mm. Like it's a it's a a post office and it's a big one. Like they really process for the mid Wilshire area, a lot of mail. And, you know, I remember like, oh, I had to check the hours one day. So I Google it, the Yelp review comes up and it's just like one shitty review after the other. And I've been going to this post office for literally two decades now. <laughs> and here's the thing is you walk in to any post office and you'll see a long line and immediately you have an emotional reaction to Ugh, it. Well, this yeah. is bullshit. <laughs> right. I shouldn't have to put up with this. And this is bull. And why aren't they moving faster? And why aren't there more people there? And blah, 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 all these reasons. And I challenged myself one day. I actually had some like insight and some patience. And I went, okay, there's a line of nine people in front of me. Let me just turn on my phone, the timer. I only waited eight minutes. Oh my gosh, a minute per and yet, person. People were coming in and going, seeing the line and going, ah, and slamming down their stuff or flouncing off. It's like, and then, you know, the workers have to put up with that shit. I know. You know all those complaints and like, it, yeah. I, I couldn't do it. I mean, I do, we do it. We do our own version of it, of dealing with difficulties, but still, yeah, they when deserve my... everything they make. <laughs> I agree. And when my dad was here recently, his roommate had sent him something in the mail to come here because he was here for two weeks and it basically got lost for a little bit. It should have never taken as long as it did. Right. And I, I was like, think about all the mail we send. And when was the last time something got lost? It's pretty astonishing how yeah. the mail service works. And I guess this is a great moment to give a shout out to my postal service worker, Deontay, who listens to the show because he processes all of our Patreon mail. <laughs> and oh my gosh. Yeah, he does. He always is like, Okay, I know there's like a challenge coin in this one, but I'm going to try and get this through like the flexible mail. Don't like, get him in trouble. I don't. I don't. It's totally on him. He's like, let's see if it gets through as this because it's cheaper. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. He's like, because this is going all the way to Australia. <laughs> He's so sweet. And he always asks how the it. show's doing. And up until the last time I had a conversation with him, he thought you and I were married. So boy, I was, I well, said, we are nope. married, just well, not to each other. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I have referred to you as my other, other half many, many you're my, times. You're my pod wife. Yeah, but Deontay's awesome. Love him. Thank okay, you, Deontay. Yes. So in that Vice article, they cite an important report that asserts that for at least a period of 16 years, the relationship between the USPS workforce and supervision or management in the Oklahoma City region of the USPS was already being described as poor. So it, again- not holding their national standards. They're, they've got yeah. a reputation, right? Yes, before anything ever even okay. popped off. So it continued to deteriorate, hitting a new low in 1986 when a large shift in the upper management instigated significantly stricter policies for employees. While the change was significant, in itself, it made for a more stressful, intense environment as an undercurrent of conflict had been brewing since really what they can tell the early 1970s. So mm. it's a long time coming. Right. It isn't all just about upper management assholes, though, as our vice article points out. The USPS incrementally received fewer government subsidies over the course of a decade as part of a plan to make it self-sufficient. Again, do more with less, right? So this is problematic because it reflects on a cultural shift that forgot that the post office was never set up to be profitable. It's a national service with a budget that is subsidized by government funding. And by 1982, those subsidies were completely gone. So yeah. what the fuck is happening? <laughs> I know. And it's actually pretty, it's pretty relevant right now because our current postmaster general, Louis DeJoy, is a very controversial figure because he's of a political bent that just wants, I mean, he doesn't support public services. You know, he'll say that Jeez. we just want it to be more efficient, but he was the one during COVID when mail service actually went up, the need for mail service went up. Uh -huh. He started dismantling sorting machines around the country saying, oh, they were broken. They were being, I mean, I, I can't even believe that he hasn't been taken out of office yet. He's just a piece of work. But from 1982 going forward, there was a lot of pressure to operate more efficiently. And that included automating more processes and generally, like you were saying, produce more with less. Have your workers have hit more productivity benchmarks with us putting out less money. And this is when the country saw the first of ongoing and many price increases. Although I think, I mean, I would go so far as to say, I think that like the price was for mail was artificially low at that time because it mm -hmm. was subsidized. I mean, it's amazing that you, what we pay to have a piece of mail go across the country yes, or across the world, you know, in a matter of days is pretty right. phenomenal. Managers were quoted as saying that they uh, really, oh wait, hold on. So the, the, Post office's main strategy at that time was really about squeezing as much work as possible out of his existing workers. I mean, they were really being run ragged with just total increasing pressures and less resources. And then the managers that had been put in place were quoted in other articles as saying that they, quote, did not have time for human relations skills. Oh, great. Wow. Those are the thoughts we keep on the inside, people. Yes. You don't say that outside. <laughs> and there are a lot of stories about workers being punished and written up without warning. And then that leads to filing retaliation claims and then being retaliated against because you filed a retaliation claim mm -hmm. about a grievance. I mean, it just really, really ramped up. And and while it's also like really another horrible event that claimed 14 people who lost their lives, there was an occupational and safety event that occurred way under the radar in the UPSPS that involved 
with a toxic chemical spill on one site and it was never reported. Whoa. So there's very little consistency across the country as to policy on corrective action, at least there was at the time. And it left managers to basically just, like I said earlier, they run their own kingdoms when it came to mm. punishment. So thankfully, there's been a huge shift in that. Unions don't allow that at all anymore. Right, right. They can't be, sort of be on their own islands anymore. So what are the reasons for what we were seeing here? I mean, it can't all just be bad management and... It isn't. There are other factors involved that are clearly laid out by the CDC. These have all been thoroughly researched due to the very significant rise in incidents that we've covered already and the various factors that may increase the work and the various factors that may increase the risk of workplace assault have been widely studied and identified by these following researchers, Collins, Cox, Davis, Krauss, Lynch, Castillo, and Jenkins. We'll have links to all of those. Yeah, the list is really pretty fascinating. Number one, I mean, this is not going to come as a surprise to anybody that's ever had to wait tables or work retail. Wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep a tally of how many of these are relevant for me. Okay, go. Right. Okay. <laughs> Contact with the public. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to say yes for you. Wait, I'm going to put Scott. I have this awesome desk that is like a whiteboard that I can write on. So I'm going to oh, do cool. this. Okay. One for Scott. Go. Okay. Two is handling of money. No. So I had that when I was bartending and waiting tables and working retail. So that's a stressor right. too. Right. Providing transportation or delivery services. I thankfully have only ever done that as a volunteer. Like okay. I would like, but but think about all the Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and all right. those services, right? Right. But I'm just um, talking like our jobs right now. So oh, our jobs right I'm now. I'm sure okay. we've all had a speckling of these, but okay. Okay. Here's number four: working in mobile workplaces like taxis or police cruisers. Oh. Not Absolutely. That but... is so stressful. I like having a, you know, we're, we're on a call and I've got to get something like I've got to get paperwork filled out on the site and I'm trying to get my hotspot to go and my laptop, my work laptop, which has literally the tiniest keyboard in the world. I like, I have to become a human shrimp in order to type on that thing. Shrimp. It's so stupid. There are pros and cons to this. I will have to say like it, UPS drivers, I feel like, oh my gosh, they have so much space as opposed to a police cruiser. But that's true. That's true. It becomes true. your like little home that's just like yours and you can kind of, I guess, I mean, I have a work car and I have all sorts of little things in there in case I need, I don't know. I see pros and cons. Go ahead. Well, Continue. let Sorry. me talk about this just as a side. I mean, this has become something that ha is, is an issue uh, about working in delivery services and mobile workstations is Amazon is really, really guilty of this. And this has been a huge controversy of Amazon just really crushing their workers with, oh. with an incredible monitoring. So they'll say, mm -hmm. I don't understand why it took you this amount of time to deliver to this apartment. Oh, well, this uh, that particular apartment, they may be delivering to an apartment that has 700 units. Yeah, or gates and, and you know. Right, and you know, they're having to, to, you know, get across all these hurdles in order to do it. But now they also monitor you. Like a colleague of mine, her son did Amazon delivery for a while. And because he was so efficient, like he had done the day's work mm -hmm. in less than three quarters of the workday, they doubled his workload. Of course. The next day he came of in course. and he was like, forget this, I'm done. They like throw yeah, so, an air tag on them and like monitor. Yeah, they absolutely, they, well, everything yeah. they're monitoring monitoring the GPS because you have to go by their route that is supposed to be the yeah. most efficient. I mean, I see part of it as being legit, but you know, they it's, always just want yeah. to discount the human factor. Well, and I think 
the, the unique stress to working in a mobile workplace is having to deal with traffic all day. You're driving yeah. all day. That's yeah. horrific. I think about like the use, the USPS and the FedEx and the UPS drivers that do the mountain communities. And I think that would be, I mean, maybe hmm. I'm wrong. If anybody's out there and knows about this, that to me would be cool. Like you're driving up the mountain. And beautiful you're doing scenery. Couple, yeah, beautiful <laughs> scenery. You're on your own. You know, you're not stopping every like, you know, every Walk. half mile. Yeah. So going on, here's one. Let's see if it fits for either of us. <laughs> Number five, working with unstable individuals in healthcare, social service, or criminal justice settings. Check. Yes. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> okay. So we also have working alone or in small groups. I actually work pretty isolated most of my time, which I love. But... See, I'm the opposite. I really like working in groups. Like, yeah. and it doesn't mean we have to be talking and collaborating all the time, but I just, I, I, I like that energy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also working late at night or during early morning hours. Yeah. And I would say that would have to be, you know, consistently. So the people that right. work those swing shifts and early morning watches working in high crime areas. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. If your job entails protecting valuable property possessions, of course, innately stressful. And then the last one that they found was working in community-based settings. How about that, Scott? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you certainly have more than I do right now. So well, keep that I toolbox don't working. Have, I don't have any grievances I, <laughs> that I know of. Uh, you have a good wellness toolbox at your disposal. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> but you know, let's let me sort of pull apart those ten points that we talked about. Working with the public can be stressful for a lot of reasons. We know that customer engaged employees will often face really high levels of pressure and scrutiny from their supervisors to meet quote unquote customer expectations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea of the customer is always right. It's not embedded in all companies, but it really seems to be profoundly embedded in the psyche of the American consumer, especially oh. when it comes to retail. Yes. And stress arises from the pressure to consistently provide all these types of services while adhering to company policies and procedures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a high level of stress from performance anxiety has an impact on even the most seasoned employees. You have to deal with a wide range of personalities and emotions that can be really challenging. Having to navigate difficult interactions like irate or upset customers, managing conflict, like that's a whole skill set in and of itself. Absolutely. That and so one that taught. I'm in wonder of, like I can yes. deal with, I can deal with difficult clients, people that are having a manic episode. Mm -hmm. But when I see someone doing a full-on Karen at Target yeah. and the, the person, the woman across the desk or the guy across the desk is just keeping it completely yep. neutral and monotone, I'm like, oh my God, that is a superpower. Absolutely. So positions like this require strong interpersonal skills, emotional intelligence, and the ability to remain calm and composed under pressure. And many employees may have those abilities that allow them to function well in the outside world. But dealing with customers is certainly a whole different level. So we also have to add to this the challenge of managing unpredictable situations as well as incidences that can be including verbal or even physical aggression from frustrated or dissatisfied customers. This is why my algorithm on my Facebook feed, I watch <laughs> like I'm on public freakouts and I see oh, like those geez. airline freakouts or, you know, just people losing it. I think also there's a dense, I think there's really some disinhibition going on in the world today oh, where yeah. people that are on the edge 
anyway would have been more contained four years ago than they are right now. Now everyone feels completely entitled to Mm -hmm. just go off despite the fact that there are more cameras than ever. It's like there's this weird disconnect. I'm entitled to lose my shit, even though I'm sure somebody's going to film this and put it on YouTube. Maybe maybe there's some part of them that that's like this underlying histrionics that needs that kind of attention. So your Facebook feed is basically just a filter for upcoming episodes for us. Seriously, I'm telling you, like I and I have to flip really quick because I also like like I like seeing flipping tiny homes or designing tiny (laughs) homes. Bushcraft. I think bushcraft is fascinating. Furniture restoration and art restoration. And then Karen's going off. Like what a weird combination of things. That is strange. But you had to get off like my feet are killing me. They kept showing me like clips from my feet are killing me. I'm like, I cannot look at another elderly person's like ratchet pair of feet. I just can't. It just makes me like I I like want to go fix it. And I am not I'm not trained to fix something like that. But I digress. Wait, you just like you just like the hot foot doctor from that show. He is super cute. (laughs) He is is super cute. And he's really nice. And he's very, you know, there are even Dr. Pimple Popper. That's a gross name, but she's very kind. She is to these people that come in with like really, you know, really shame based public, you know, the way they present to the public. Like she's very, very patient. Yeah. Okay. Now we can anyway, get track. <laughs> we digress. Sorry. My coffee's kicking in. So the final layer of pressure for people in these positions comes from this constant sense of being evaluated and monitored. So it sounds like a, a powder keg. And, you know, this scenario really hasn't changed. I mean, there are some things that are actually getting worse with people, not people, but companies continuing to instigate more and more surveillance of workers through the use of apps and keyboard loggers. And it's all framed within this paradigm of productivity. Like, yeah. oh, we just want you to be productive. It's like, well, look at the numbers. If somebody can front load their day and do an entire day's work in four hours, why shouldn't they get paid the same as somebody that takes eight hours like don't penalize people for being more productive it's also very interesting there's a a very famous philosopher that we talk about a lot in clinical mental health his name's Foucault and he wrote about a prison system and how crushing it was because there was a building design called the panopticon and it was designed so that the all the cells could be viewed by a central location. Mm-hmm. And it's this, the idea of this is still used in incarceration settings as well. But the thing that, that was causing inmates to be really, really uncomfortable, which can lead to violence, is that they felt like they were being watched all the time. There was no privacy, not even when they were sitting on the toilet. And you can't do that and expect people not to feel the pressure, especially, you know, in a rarefied incarceration setting. So yeah, there's some very interesting study about how people feel when they're being watched all the time and being judged and sort of dehumanized in yeah. their productivity. Oh my um, gosh. But I, you're reminding me, I had a dream last night where I was sitting on the toilet what? in like a glass room where people, where there was like a party and people were outside and they could see inside. That's fascinating. <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> Well, it means you feel like you're on display and during your most intimate moments. And, Ooh. you know, is that affecting, you know, that has an effect mm. on you. And you are like, we put a lot of our lives out here. Oh my you know, gosh. we have great listeners. We have the rare, interesting one that like <laughs> tends to lash out at us. But, you know, for the most part, we share a lot. Oh, that's so funny. Okay. Okay. We are like unraveling. Yes, there's the your Jungian psychology <laughs> dream interpretation for Thank the day. You. We have a couple of other criminal cases that we're going to 
look at, and we began with what are really the most seminal moments that created that catchphrase. The USPS incidents are not the only significant examples, though, of tragic and extreme workplace violence events. Correct. So let's go back to 1967. This is known as the Lab Tech Rampage which occurred at a paper mill. This incident occurred when a respected lab technician at a paper mill in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, carried out a shooting spree. Reports indicate that the murderer was disgruntled over conflicts with his carpool group, co-workers, a supervisor, as well as his neighbor. Yikes. And he entered the workplace armed with a 45 automatic and a Smith & Wesson 38. He shot and killed six individuals during this rampage. Yeah, there are other examples too. Again, expanding from just the USPS to workplace violence. This was a really big one for yes. California. Like this was really, really huge. In 1976, there was a library janitor at Cal State Fullerton. That's California State University in Fullerton. And he shot nine people, resulting in seven deaths at the university library. And according to Nicole Smith's article called The Quiet Custodian, he survived and he later confirmed Fest, stating that he had just gone berserk at the university in the library and he utilized a 22 caliber rifle to kill his victims at close range and he was somehow I mean, I guess this is because it's 1976. He was adjudicated as not guilty by reason of insanity. And furthermore, which I mean, that's just so rare for something like that I to know. happen. And regardless, even if you did have a mental break, the, 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 the level of severity of the crime really kind of shocks me because of the next thing I want to share with you, because he was sent not to prison. He was sent to Atascadero State Hospital here in California and then went like he did so well at Atascadero State Hospital, which is one of our inpatient psych long-term facilities. And they transferred him to basically Napa State Hospital, mm -hmm. which is beautiful and in wine country yep. and a lower, lower security level at Napa State. And then he was deemed by UC Irvine professor, Dr. Blair, who is also working as a state psychiatrist. That's Dr. Paul Blair, declared him to be in full remission of his psychopathic behavior. Good Lord, I have never heard anyone make that determination before. I haven't either. I mean, that's, that's one of these really extreme examples of how our profession and the way we look at things has changed yeah. in the past decades. I'm so glad you added this one on here. I actually have this on our list of potential episode topics. I, we should fill it out. Yeah. yeah. I went to Cal State Fullerton and I never knew about this. I think I learned about it after I came to my current job and a one of the negotiators I work with, we were talking about mass shootings and he went to Fullerton as well. And he was like, hey, do you like recall that this, not that I was alive back then, but he's like, there was a shooting at our school and I had never heard about it. And I immediately put it on our list, but it's just so fascinating. Well, you would the... think that they would have a memorial to the victims or something, or maybe that's, maybe they want to, I... maybe they want to keep it under the radar. I don't know. Yeah. I don't remember. I spent lots of time at that library and I don't remember seeing anything like that, but also Yikes. I was just trying to finish school. So, and then in 1982, there was an incident in Texas. So this was following an unfavorable outcome in a pay dispute where a truck driver committed a shooting spree at two different Western Transportation Company warehouses in Texas. He claimed the lives of six workers and left three others wounded. The shooter engaged in a high-speed chase with law enforcement afterwards, which resulted in breaking through a barricade and injuring a police officer before he was then killed in a shootout mm. with police. So in 1984, 
a former employee of a company called ESL Inc., located in Sunnyvale, California, had developed a really unhealthy and severe fixation on his co-worker. Her name was Laura Black. She repeatedly rejected his advances, and eventually she had to go ahead and file a restraining order against him. And this unfortunately set him off. I want in saying this, I don't ever want to encourage people not to file restraining orders. That's almost always going to be in your favor. But unfortunately, in this particular incident in retaliation, he then proceeded to his former workplace armed with over a thousand rounds of ammunition and the resulting Carnage resulted in the deaths of seven employees there, including Miss Black, as well as injuring four others. Just horrible, horrible yeah. event. There's that not domestic violence because they weren't in a relationship, but that rejection. And that yes, it's a very dangerous time for people when they when the perpetrator perceives that cutoff, right, right, of the relationship. And then in 1989, a worker with a long history of mental illness and previous hospitalizations. And then in 1989, a worker with a long history of mental illness and previous hospitalizations due to being a danger to himself and others had received news that his disability benefits would be discontinued. The worker returned to the place of his former employment, a printing company in Kentucky, and opened fire. He killed nine individuals, injured 12, and then turned the gun on himself. And then more recently in 1999, a day trader, which is a very stressful job and requires a particular kind of person personality to do this, committed a series of crimes over a period of three days. And he started by horrifically murdering his wife and two children with a hammer, then went on to carry out mass shootings at a company called Momentum Securities and All Tech Investment Group. He killed 12 individuals and then he later took his own life. So I, I made that statement. And I don't want to like make a blanket statement about day traders, but day trading is very, very stressful. People make enormous assumptions about how much money they're going to make when mm -hmm. the statistics show that they really don't make much money. But in this case, I remember this one. I remember because he felt that the, the companies had promised him that he was going to be oh, successful in it. his investments. So he was taking out his revenge in that way. Yeah. I mean, the list can go on and on. We just wanted yeah. to give you an example of other settings than the post office. And there's so many motives and so many factors. And, you know, I know our audience is well-versed on it because as much as recently, we've really focused on mass casualty events and threat assessment. And unfortunately, you know, I don't think we're done doing that because there's so many aspects to cover. And there are many mandates and guidelines to assist both government and private entities in the identification and prevention of workplace violence at the hands of employees. We know from the research on mass casualty events that the workplace is the most common place for an incident like that to occur. Additionally, there are threat assessment managers that specialize in workplace violence assessment and management. They may be brought in when a situation arises, like they will hire a threat assessment manager, or if the entity is big enough, they might have their own in-house person to do that. Or if they are a company or entity where, you know, the potential for violence arises more. And, and I would say that's more from like outside people being angry with them because of the nature of what they do. They might have, again, someone in-house who does this on a fairly regular basis. And this individual may simultaneously 
simultaneously assess risk from outside individuals threatening violence against the company and business. So like when we talked to Matt Talbot on our live stream, he's a threat assessment manager. And you and I are trying to get our friend and fellow forensic psychologist Ryan to come on our live stream in the next couple of months because he does exactly this type of work where he can look at outside risk as well as people inside the agency, the entity for whom he works for. So I think it would just be a really interesting conversation for him to lead us through yeah, that goes. So fascinating because he used to work at my agency and then yeah. moved over to the city. And, and we he's went to just school really, together. Oh, well, that's right. I forgot yeah. about that. But he's really Sweetest hit his stride. Guy. I love it. According to OSHA, which for those of you not in the U.S., occupational safety and hazard here in the U.S., one of the best preventive measures and protections that employers can offer their employees is to have a clear establishment of a zero tolerance policy towards any workplace violence. And the policy should cover all workers, clients, patients, visitors, contractors, anyone who may come in contact with company personnel. And so by assessing work sites, employers can identify methods for reducing the likelihood of these types of incidents occurring. Again, just being aware, which is something that actually is relatively new when you think of the the history of big business in across the world and in the US. It's really only in the last few decades that these things have been established. And OSHA believes that you have to, it has to be well-written and it has to be implemented well into the workplace alongside the violence prevention program. And then that has to be combined with engineering controls, administrative controls, and then tons of training. I mean, yeah, like sometimes always. I'm rolling my eyes like, oh my God, another training. And now <laughs> I understand why we have to repeat this stuff over mm-hmm. and over again. But it's also shown that all of implementing all these things can actually reduce the incidence of workplace violence in the private sector as well as federal workplaces. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few risk assessment tools that are used by threat assessment managers or psychologists when evaluating a person's risk of violence in the workplace. There's the waiver 21, that's W-A-V-R, which was developed by Dr. Reed Malloy and Dr. Stephen White. And the waiver 21 is a 21 item coded instrument for the structure of assessment of specifically workplace targeted violence risk. It's also applicable to adult students for college campus context as well. And the item domains of the waiver include psychological, behavioral, historical, and situational factors associated with workplace violence, including when intimate partner violence poses a threat to the workplace. So again, they're capturing that which we see a lot of. And again, targeted violence refers to situations in which an individual intentionally commits an act of violence against a pre-selected target, whether that target is people or a place. And it is also referred to sometimes as intended violence. And the idea is that these acts are potentially foreseeable as they are the result of an understandable, evolving, and often discernible process of thinking, behavior, preparation that, you know, in hindsight, we go, oh. There's, we knew that that was going to happen or we weren't surprised or so-and-so had these threats of violence. Even with the first case study that we started with, I read somewhere that Gavin DeBecker had commented that there was so many red flags ignored with this employee that it really was the responsibility of the United States Postal Service to have addressed those properly. 
All right. So to round things out, we found a few pieces of entertainment that either had these themes of going postal or had mentions of going postal, just to, I think more than anything, to show how it had come into our vernacular, if not sort of being a theme of the show or the movie. So of course, good old Criminal Minds, season 13, an episode called False Flag, the Edmund post office shooting that we mentioned at the top was one of several similar incidents that in this episode, a conspiracy theorist named Melissa Miller claimed were staged by the U.S. government in order to increase gun control. So again, we we hear that many a times over from certain individuals. So yeah. they decided to work it into a, an episode. So uh, this is not a postal worker, but two workplace violence inspired movies. One is a very famous one. If you haven't seen it, it's actually a great, well, you know what? I remember it as being a really great movie, but it's been mm. a long time. 1993 falling down with. Um, oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an interesting movie because it's about someone who is under a lot of family stressors going through a divorce and and workplace stressors and it's a hot day stuck in traffic LA traffic. And he just he just loses it so he doesn't snap because they're they have set up that he's been under increasing amounts of pressure but the thing that happened with this movie that was directed by Joel Schumacher and really well received is that the late character who does some terrible things becomes an anti-hero and that's the problem with portraying these types of events in the media yeah is that you can do the exact opposite of the intent. Like, I mean, this movie was about him. He does make some very sort of pointed and sardonic observations about life in the 20th century at the time, about the economy, freedom, all these things. But again, really taken to the extreme by some of the people that viewed it. There's another one that I really love that is a hard to watch movie and it's not everybody's cup of tea, but this is a David Duchovny movie called The Rapture. Hmm. And it is a religious themed or spiritual themed movie about a religious cult that's preparing for the rapture and the rapture actually does happen. And oh, it's very, very what? interesting. But there is a, there's a series of events where the lead female character is inspired to make some decisions because her husband was killed in a workplace violence event. And it, it's a, only oh. a few short scenes, but it shows a very kind and concerned David Duchovny, like as a middle manager, trying to de-escalate this guy who clearly has a lot of anger issues and a lot of mental health issues. And the guy's like, has a great scene. I don't know what happened to that actor, but he's like crying and screaming and blaming everybody else but himself and mm. saying horrible things. And then he comes back with a gun and, and shoots a bunch of people, including Jeez. David Duchovny. It's a heavy movie, but yeah. like there's also like a really strange and challenging ending that I really liked. What mm. else did you have? Just some like brief mentions. So in the 1995 film version of Jumanji. One of the characters, Van Pelt, purchases a rifle at a gun store and the clerk, when he's selling it to him, says, you're not a postal worker, are you? Jeez. Well, that's an important point because during this time when all this was going down, they, they, it became like the late night talk show. I mean, yes. I remember Jay Leno making yes. a lot of jokes about Jeez. going postal, which is like, now we look at it and we go, really? Way too soon, dude. Mm. Way too soon. So in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is hilarious and kind of goes there, <laughs> they have an episode yeah. where this they're working with this U.S. Postal Inspector Service agent who is trying to be hilarious and probably trying to keep up with the rest of them. But he's insisting to them that the term going postal actually refers to bringing goodness into people's lives. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> like he's yeah, trying delivering to just, the mail. I'm going to reframe it and I'm just, I'm going to take this term back and make it something funny. So yeah, um, we can't, we can't not get away from this either from without talking about Newman oh, as the character gosh. in Seinfeld yeah, is like yeah. this evil, evil postal worker that like just is power hungry for what he can do That's and whether hilarious. he, whether or not he decides to deliver the mail. So. Right, right. His power trip. Well, there you go, guys. Going postal. Everything you never wanted to know about the term. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things we did was we gave gave you guys some examples of events that have happened and certainly some of the factors that contribute to it. And we would be remiss without saying that not all of these perpetrators fit the same profile. There's mm -hmm. so much evidence that we don't have about their mental health status and their mental health histories. Yeah. But what, what you were saying, Dr. Shiloh, is like, especially in those incidents where they started out at home and they killed families family members, right. you know, there's, there's certainly, you know, we can say that it's all anger, but anger at, at that level comes from a place of being emotionally or mentally unstable on some level. Maybe you weren't there all the time, but they got there somehow. Yeah. So again, nobody's snapping. There was, this was these, all of these events were brewing for a long time because of a number of factors. Yes. Go back and listen to our mass casualty event and domestic violence episode. I'll link it in yes. the show notes just if people want to check that out because these all overlap and can't cover it all, all these factors in one episode. So exactly. So with that, I hope everyone's summer is starting off well, and we will see you next week on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye, everyone. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license, and you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.